0: It's so good to be here today and just to open the Word of God together as a family. I'll ask you to take your Bibles with me as we return to our study of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 and we are continuing our study of the crucial doctrine of Christian conduct. It's kind of ironic in light of uh, this fact that as I, I was sitting in Sunday school this morning at Sunday school, kind of chuckling to myself as to what was being talked about in Sunday school this morning, because the Lord does that. He seems to, Al has come up to me several times after I preached, or, uh, and he said, man, that fit right in with, with what I was teaching in Sunday school. And of course, Al and I don't communicate during the week. We're just teaching two books of God's Word. Imagine that, that it fits together. And here we are again this morning, and I was chuckling back there of how ironic it is that they were talking about what they are talking about and what we're going to spend our time in this morning. So I want to read for us this section that we are in. We've been in there for some time now, but I want to read it for us again, beginning in verse nine and read down to the end of the chapter. The apostle Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good." Now, there is a principle within Bible study, I think, that is often neglected and or abused. And that neglect or abuse happens for a whole host of different reasons. But the primary reason is because we, as Christians, those who take the Bible and open the Bible and read the Bible and hopefully study the Bible, either... We don't think about this principle, or we try to run to it too quickly. And when we do that without truly understanding what it is that we are studying, we come away with beginning to apply the wrong action. The principle that I'm talking about is a principle that I call the so what principle. The so what principle. So what principle is, I think, one of the most important principles in all of the principles of Bible study, because it is the principle that takes what we learned from our study and puts it into practice in our life. It is that principle. In other words, all of the Bible study in the world that we do as Christians will do us no good at all in our Christian lives if... We are not properly implementing the so what principle. So when we study the Bible, we must be asking and correctly implementing this principle, because this principle asks of us as the studier, what are you going to do with what this means? What are you going to do with what this means? What are you going to do with your learning? I'll just give us a a simple generic example this morning. Ephesians chapter 5 says to the Christian husband, love your wives as Christ loves the church. I know us men don't like to run to that passage very often, even though we believe that with our hearts because it's such a challenge. It's such a great exhortation. And it's great by way of its import, and it's great by way of its impact. To say the least, it carries a whole lot of spiritual weight, or marriages in particular. But it will have no effect upon the Christian marriage if the husband does not implement what they learn from that very command. And so we Christian husbands need to be asking ourselves, so what does that commanded truth, what does that authoritative, unchangeable truth command me specifically within my marriage as I love my wife? We're not all married to the same woman. All of our wives do not act the same way. They do not do the same things. They are all certainly women, but they do not all act the same. And so each of our marriages have a specific way in which we are to be implementing that command. So what does this command have to do with me? What does it have to do with my life? How is it that I personally am to be putting that specific command into practice in my specific life and my particular marriage? And we could even say in a broader sense to even those men who aren't married, married, you can learn something from the reality of love and the command of love that's given to husbands in Ephesians 5, even though you're not married. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the implication? What's the implication of the command that may be different in my marriage that isn't different, that isn't the same in somebody else's marriage? Because it does me no good to understand the principle if I'm not asking the so what question in light of my understanding of the command. So the so what principle helps me to implement the truth. It helps me to put into practice the truth from the principles that I'm learning and studying. And the reason that many Christians have trouble is not because they're not saved. There are some who claim Christ, who claim Christianity, who aren't saved at all, and they're always going to have trouble because they're not saved. They don't have the Spirit in them. But the reason that many true Christians have trouble with with their Christian lives is because they rarely think about the implications of the truth and the truth principle that they're currently given understanding about. It just becomes a principle in a book of principles that they go, oh, that's really good, and they put it on their shelf of principles and it's never implemented. It's never thought about how to implement And one of the great things about the Bible, and one of the great things about the loving Father that we have in God and how He condescends to us, is that there are times when the so what principle is clearly laid out for us in a general way. In other words, we don't have to really think too hard about it. God just gives it to us. And Romans chapter 12 through chapter 16 are doing just that. These chapters are the so what of all that we've learned in chapters 1 to 11. All the principles that we learned, all the doctrine that we learned, all the truth that we learned from chapters 1 to 11 is now being asked of us to implement it, and God is laying out how it's to be implemented. In other words, since we are all dead in our our prior Christian life, to sin, we are dead by nature, it says in Scripture. And since we were guilty before God for violating His divine law, chapters 1 and 2 of Romans, and yet He sent Christ. He sent Christ to pay for our sin, to pay the penalty. And since by faith in Christ we now have, Romans 8, no condemnation before God. And since we have been, because of our position with Christ, freed from the ownership of sin, all that is in the first 11 chapters. Because of all of that, the so what do we do with that, the so how are we to be putting this into practice is listed in the final chapters of Romans. We don't have to wonder. So this is Christian living. This is the general so-what principle listed out for us in just practical, outworking ways. And we've looked at several of these already. Now, one of the difficulties of the Christian life is that it's filled with all kinds of trouble. That's what causes some people who think they're going to come to Jesus and Jesus is going to fix every circumstance in their life this is what causes them to turn away and not want Jesus anymore. Much like those in John chapter six, who just wanted Jesus Christ to give them all of their physical needs, all the things that they wanted. And so he fed them the night before they wanted him to feed them again the next day. And Jesus says, you're after the wrong thing. You need to be after the bread of life. And then what do they do? They turn from Jesus and walk away because they didn't want to implement that idea in their life. This is what happens. And so there's all kinds of trouble in the Christian life because it doesn't make life easy. Many people leave. Truly unbelievers who said they were believers, they just walk away. And certainly our own personal lives have troubles, Our personal troubles as Christians today, as we live here in 2020, United States of America, are not the same troubles that we might have been facing if we grew up and lived in the first century. In fact, during the days of the Apostle Paul, when Paul walked the earth, when Paul penned these very words to us, he faced trials and tribulations unlike anything that you or I have faced. He was a Jew, and being a Jew, he was most most likely ostracized by his own family because he was a follower of Jesus Christ. And when we say ostracized, we don't mean he was a little bit shunned. We mean he was considered a dead man. It was as if he had died to the family. The Jewish family would no longer have anything to do with you. You would be excommunicated, not only from the family, but you would be excommunicated from the synagogue. And the synagogue was the centrality of all of Jewish life. You couldn't even go to worship. He would have most likely had a difficult time in any Jewish town trying to buy anything. He would have lost personal property. And if that wasn't enough, it seemed like every town that Paul entered, he was driven out by Jew and Gentile alike. Why? Simply because he was trying to bring the good news to them? Simply because he wanted them to know Jesus Christ? Simply because he wanted them to have their eyes open to the truth? And each and every one of us knows some of this to probably a monumentally simpler and smaller degree. I I personally can say that I've had difficulties in my Christian life Sadly, much of it has come from other Christians. That's what happens. We rub together. We have trouble. There's difficulties. But none of that compares to the trouble of the first century Christian. Those who live in countries, even in our day, under governments that both endorse and enforce unchristian and unethical religious persecution... But even with all that said, like I said, every one of us has faced to some degree trouble because of our identification with Christ. This is the nature of Christianity. This is the nature of our faith. This is the nature of who we are in Jesus Christ. And it's that nature of that because of sin. We've been saved by grace, and yet even in a family of people who are saved by grace, we are Grace saved sinners, the body of Christ, and sometimes, and sometimes often, we hurt each other. It's just part of it. And the only way that we're going to find the happy place, if I can use that colloquial term, the only way we're going to really be happy, regardless of where the trouble comes from, whether it's outside in the world or whether it's inside in the church, the only way that we're going to truly rise above it is to practice what Paul is exhorting us here today. Because we already know that we're dealing with Christian to Christian conduct, beginning in verse 9. We've already been exhorted to love without hypocrisy. We've been commanded in verse 10 to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, to to be the leaders, to lead the way in giving preference when it comes to honor to one another. If you're sitting there this morning, you're thinking, Christian, which I know you are because you're smart people, you're thinking... Well, then I also know that if I'm going to live that way, there's inevitably going to be difficulty. Not only difficulty in myself, not only difficulty in me carrying this out, but even when I do that, people are going to have problems. There's going to be difficulty. And when difficulty comes, what's it do? It tends to lend itself to all kinds of disappointments. Discouragement. Just a general sense of unhappiness in us, right? That's what happens. None of us like being disliked. None of us like being mistreated. So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with that? How do we remain happy in the midst of doing what God has commanded us to do? Even when, and especially when, it introduces to us disheartening times. Well, this is the very next so-what principle that Paul gives us here. You notice what he says in verse 12, Rejoice in hope, or rejoicing in hope. And you notice that this is a continuation of the list of exhortations that he began in verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope. So I trust that just in that quick reading of those few verses, you can see part of the outflow of our interaction with each other. Part of the outflow of what goes on in those interpersonal happenings between being devoted to one another and giving preference and not lagging behind. And it implies that when we carry those out, when we carry out those exhortations, when we live according to the command of God to us here, there's going to be times of potential discouragement. Otherwise, there's no need for Paul to say, be rejoicing in hope. That's why he says it, says rejoicing in hope. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? What does he mean by that? Well, we can get a glimpse into what he means by first going back to chapter 5. Go back to Romans chapter 5 because Paul has, has addressed this in another way. Romans chapter five, verses one and two, he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope. Hope of what? Hope of the glory of God we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Over in chapter 8 and verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This future reality of what is coming. In verse 24 and verse 25. For in hope, of that same chapter, Romans 8, for in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. You see? So when Paul says that we are to be rejoicing in hope in chapter 12, he clearly does not mean what we might sometimes think. He is not saying that we should just simply override all things with some kind of conjured up cheerful attitude. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, listen, there, there's a great silver lining behind it all, just put a smile on your face. Paul isn't telling us as Christians to do that. In fact, I would go so far to say that this kind of rejoicing doesn't always have a smile on its face. So he's not talking about putting some some kind of uh, nice definition on things that are bad and thereby you can smile about it, some kind of wishful outlook that it really isn't true at all, trying to convince yourself that, after all, the world and what's happening in the world around me is just going to get better and better and better. No. What Paul's talking about when he says rejoice in hope is the doctrine of the hope. The doctrine of the hope. We are to be rejoicing in the hope. So if we're going to be rejoicing in hope, then we better understand what it is that we've already been taught. We better understand clearly what we've already heard in chapter 5 and chapter 8. The only way and the only people who rejoice in hope are the ones who are clear about what the Bible teaches. The only way we can rejoice in that kind of hope that Paul's talking about is when we understand exactly what the Bible teaches. So let me just give us two biblical truths of what the Bible teaches that should help us rejoice in hope. Two biblical truths. The first, to rejoice in hope, we need to have a biblical view of the world. A biblical view of the world. According to the New Testament, we have been saved out of the world. That's what it says to us. In fact, Galatians chapter 1, verse 4 says that we have been delivered from the present evil world. We have been delivered from the present evil world. Now, I want to suggest to us that if we are not seeing the world from that perspective, that as Christians, if we are not truly understanding the world as it is described in Scripture, then we will not experientially know the reality of Paul's exhortation in verse 11. Why do I say that? Because the fundamental teaching of Scripture about the world is that it is a place under the judgment of God. The world and all that it is is under the judgment of God. Sometimes we don't get that definition around us. Sometimes you look at the things that you're involved in and the things of the news agencies and the things of the newspapers and magazines and people around you, and they think the world is just going to get better and better and better. In fact, every generation that's gone on has thought we're better than the generation before us. That the world somehow is going in a better direction. And because of that, They go in all kinds of wrong directions. But that's not what the Bible declares. The Bible declares that we as Christians have been delivered out of the present evil world. And because of that, the Bible declares that there's no hope for the world. There's no hope for it in its current state. In other words, the world cannot be improved on. We can change all the rules in our country, and every country around the world can change all the rules about climate change. It isn't going to save the world. And I'm not trying to be political. I'm just trying to be biblical. It cannot be improved on. And yet this is the opposite—that the, 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 the opposite of what man thinks. Man thinks that it can be improved on. Man believes that by his own knowledge and by his own scientific wisdom and through his own modern advancements, that the world is moving in a direction by which it's getting better and better and better. But we know the truth. We know the truth as Christians. Not only do we know the truth as Christians, we know the truth experientially because history has over and over again shown us that truth, that the world is no better today than it ever has been. We are no better today in humanity than they were back in the Middle Ages or back in ancient history. We're no better. We are as pathetic today as we ever were as humans. And it isn't until we embrace that fact that we will begin as Christians to rejoice in hope. It is only on that black backdrop that you see the shining diamond of hope so brightly. Now, maybe you don't agree. Maybe you think that the world can be improved upon. Well, let me just show you a few passages, because here's how the Bible speaks of the world. 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now tell me if this doesn't describe our world today. Written thousands of years ago by men inspired by the Holy Spirit, carried along by the Holy Spirit, here's what they wrote. For men in the final days, in the last days, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful. Arrogant, revilers. Here's the attitude of the children. They will be disobedient to parents. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips. Man, if there ever was a term that described our government, that's it. Malicious gossips. Without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, even though they hold to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power, avoid such men as these. Does it sound like our world? Man, we've improved. Verse 13, Paul says to Timothy, evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to better? No. they go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. We hear of that all the time. In fact, Jesus, God incarnate, even posed this question to the disciples when talking to them in Luke chapter 18 and verse 8. He said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's almost as if when Christ comes back, there isn't even a faithful person that he finds. So if we're going to be rejoicing in hope then we first must have a right perspective of this world that we live in. A right perspective of the world. But there's a second reality that we need to think about, think and realize. And that is this, if we're going to rejoice in hope, we need to realize what God's purpose is with the world. We must realize what God's purpose is with the world. In other words, why did Christ ever come to the world? Why did he ever come? And we know, we know that he came to redeem his own. We know that. But the way of redemption is not through some kind of earthly life improvement. That's not the way of redemption. That's not the way of salvation. It's not through making your life better so that somehow in your life improvement you can find God. No, Jesus didn't redeem us by making our earthly lives a better existence. The Bible says that the Christian is a person saved out of the world. Out of the world. We are delivered from the domain of darkness placed into the kingdom of his dear son. That's what it says in Colossians. So when we're grafted into this new olive branch, that grafting will continue. We continue and remain grafted in. And then there comes a certain point. A point at which no one knows the time or the day. People have tried to figure it out in futility, to figure out the time of the day throughout history when Christ will return. They never have. They never will. Why? Because we're not supposed to be concerned about that. We're not supposed to be concerned about specific days and specific times. What we are to be concerned with is to be concerned with being ready for it. Why? Because we know it will happen. Why? Because God said it will happen. So there's coming a time when God will purge every vestige of evil from his creation. He will destroy all of his enemies, and we look for the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells, 2 Peter chapter 3 says. That's what we look for. I love it when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door. They don't very often. They have, but they don't in my neighborhood now, because they probably have a big red X on their map with my house. When they'd come, they want to say, well, we're part of the 144,000. They get to inherit the earth. And one of the questions I always ask them, oh, well, are you a Jew? Because that's what it says in Revelation. There's 12,000 from every tribe, and they're Jews. Are you a Jew? No, I'm not a Jew. Then how are you going to be one of the part of the 144,000, first of all? But they want to inherit the earth. They say, inherit the I say, you can have it. <laughs> You can have it. I turn right to 2 Peter chapter 3 and say, here's what God's going to do with it. Here's what God's going to do with it. We're looking for a new heaven and a new earth. So when Paul says that we're to be rejoicing in hope here in verse 12 of chapter 12, this is part of what he's talking about. When, when it, what he means by rejoicing in hope. We have to keep our eyes on that hope. Because real hope is founded in faith. Faith in what? Faith in the divine testimony of God. God said it. It will happen. So true hope respects what God has declared. True hope respects what God has declared and what he's declared in his word. And so Paul says here in Romans 12 to exercise hope with respect to future glory. Exercise hope with respect to future glory. Rejoice in the contemplation of the objects of that hope. Rejoice in that. doesn't mean you'll have a smile on your face because of the circumstances, but you can be rejoicing in it. In fact, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about In 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I want to turn there for a moment because this is a fascinating passage. We know it probably well. Some of you, when I said 2 Corinthians 4, you knew exactly where I was going. In fact, you're probably wondering why I hadn't gone there already. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because here the Apostle Paul is recounting much to his chagrin because the Corinthian believers are doubting his apostleship, but he's recounting the essence of his life as a Christian. And he says, you notice in verse 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now you can stop there for a moment. This this is who we are. We are just earthen vessels. We're, We're nothing better than that right? Inherently, in ourselves, we're nothing better than that. Of course, Christ, because of Christ, we're, we're God's children. But, but we have that, that, that precious blessing in this, in this earthen vessel, this, this piece of earthenware. And so Paul's saying, don't expect more than that. Don't expect more than that here. Well, that's, that's just what we are. We have treasure, yes. It's a great treasure, in fact. It's a treasure that's, that, that's monumental. That's no greater treasure could be, and yet right now, it's in an earthen vessel. And then Paul goes on to say what comes with this earthliness. Notice what he says in verse 8 and following. Afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed but not despairing persecuted, but not forsaken struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body, the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for the sake of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal Flesh. They were earthen vessels destined for trouble, this side of heaven. This is Paul's testimony. Paul is engulfed in a life of hard, difficult troubles, monumentally difficult troubles. He's, read other places, he's got sickness going on. There's disappointments with people especially those who were close to him, his difficulties with them, they've, they've betrayed him, they've left him. And not only that, he's got the constant pressure of thinking about the churches and all that's going on. And then he has persecution from those on the outside of the church. People hounding him constantly. And yet Paul rejoices in hope. How do we know that? How do we know he's rejoicing in hope? Pastor, you 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 didn't read anything about hope there. It sounded all down to me. Yeah, but notice verse 17 and 18. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Momentary light affliction? I mean, I read the list in verses 7 through 11, and, and momentary light affliction isn't the thing that comes to my mind. So what does he mean by momentary He certainly does mean that it'll end soon, but he isn't measuring it by the clock. He isn't measuring it by some chronological factor as if Paul's about to die and say, well, it's, it's just momentary because it's almost time. He's not saying that. He means that it's momentary no matter how long our life is. In other words, he's comparing it to eternity. You see, if we look at our lives in light of how the world measures things, rather than in light of eternity, then our affliction is not going to be for a moment. It's going to be for a long time. See, if we look at our lives in this world in light of eternity, then it's only a blip on the radar. It's only a moment. It's momentary. And Paul is saying, I know that this is the temporary life. I know that it's only a vapor. It's only for a moment. It's a passing phase. And so when Paul lists out these things in verses 7 through 11, and then comes to verse 17, and we hear him say those such amazing words, momentary, light affliction, he says that because he views them on the scale against the far exceeding weight of glory to come. When you measure it in eternity, it doesn't even move the scale in comparison to the glory of God and what is to come. So Paul's saying You see, that's the hope. That's the hope. What can better calculate proper rejoicing than the hope of obtaining blessings so glorious and so wonderful that we could ever imagine? What can I ever rightly calculate? What we're going through now, what could ever motivate and produce in us a rejoicing in that way other than that? Having a right view of this world undergirds that. And so where this hope kept, where this hope is exercised, We'll never fear not getting the honors the world passes out or the things that the world offers. We'll never worry about that. Because this kind of hope energizes us and equips us to despise the shame. this, This doesn't matter the shame that the world brings upon us because we're following Jesus Christ. And oh, look at your life. Look how despicable you are. Look how tragic your life is compared to us. I don't care about that. Because I have a far greater eternal weight of glory. In fact, here's how Paul put it in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, we've heard this before, we've, we've studied this book. If you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. For Christ who is our life. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's why Paul can say what he says in verse five Consider this life, the things of this life, your even your earthly body, the immortal realities, consider them nothing. They're all dead. This part of this temporary reality. They're all dead. And on account of these things the wrath of God is coming. So you know what to do. Put aside all these things which are deeds of that. Put them away. Put on new self verse 10 who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Put that on. You see, beloved, the objects of our hope are the spiritual and heavenly blessings which are yet future. That's the objects of our hope. It's not the prospect of some kind of earthly thing in which we rejoice. No, it's in God's presence in which we find fullness of joy. In communion with Jesus Christ, that's what he's talking about when he said in Philippians chapter one, "I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better." Paul was saying he's rejoicing in hope. It's the hope of righteousness for which, and through which, the Spirit. You and I as believers, we wait for that. Galatians 5.5 says, we wait for that. One author put it this way, quote, this hope and this hope alone is founded on the unchangeable promise of God, on his promise accompanied by his oath on the blood of Christ with which he has sealed his promise on him who was not only dead, but is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for his people. That's what it's founded on. The divine testimony of God. So this hope then that hope is sure that hope is steadfast. That hope is secure. That hope who is Christ entered into the Holy of Holies, the place within the veil And when we are rejoicing in hope, we are rejoicing in hope of who Jesus Christ is, who he is. That's why Paul says right after that phrase, we willingly remain in tribulation. That's the next phrase, persevering in tribulation. We're rejoicing in hope, and the only way to to persevere in tribulation is through rejoicing in hope. Persevere. Hupomeno in the original language means to remain under. Remain under. That's not our tendency. That's not what we as humans like to do. Even we Christians, we don't want to remain under the pressure. That word is in the original language. Flips us. It means heated pressure. I always think of God turning coal into diamonds in the earth. It takes a lot of heat and a lot of pressure. That's what this is. Remain under the pressure. Well, the only way you're going to do that is rejoicing in hope, knowing what the world is, knowing what God is doing with the world, seeing it rightly, seeing your life on this world on this earth as an earthen vessel, you just carry around this wonderful great treasure, and all of these things going on that God is allowing and bringing in, whether it 's people in the church or outside the church or whatever's happening, is all part of the process, and you 're going to remain in it. Remain under it. Doesn't matter what comes. Doesn't matter what trouble. Listen, that's what kept the martyrs tied to the stake or marching to the stake in which they were tied when they lit the fire under their feet. That's what kept them there. It wasn't that the world was good or the ho- or this thought about a world improving. It was the fact that they rejoiced in hope. They could persevere in tribulation. this rejoicing in hope and this persevering in tribulation leads you to that third one, which is devote yourself to prayer. Devote yourself to prayer. That would have been the martyrs, rejoicing in hope, remaining under the the persecution, constant in prayer, because they saw this world as God intends us to see it. What this life brings is a temporary light affliction. Far exceeded, though, by the weight of glory. Far exceeded. The reality is, were it not for grace, were it not for the grace and mercy of God as it was directed toward us, like Paul reminds us in verse 1 and 2, were it not for that, keep that in mind, In light of the mercies of God, were it not for that, we would be in the world without God and without hope. But now, by the mercies of God, we can present ourselves living and holy sacrifices to God and thereby rejoice in hope. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We look to Jesus as Hebrews said, the author and finisher of our faith. We look to him. Here's how Paul said it to Titus. I read it earlier. I'll read it again for us this morning. And we'll just finish with this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. You see, it's all because we, God did what he did to us, for us, through Christ, and now we rejoice. We rejoice in the hope of what is to come, who is Jesus Christ. You see, let that be the testimony of our lives. Let that be the testimony of us In the church, in our homes, our workplaces, in this world. Because this world is passing away. but Christ is coming. And we rejoice in hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Lord, what a What a monumental principle and truth. Hope. Jesus Christ is our hope. He is the hope. We rejoice in Him. We rejoice in hope. We resonate with the Apostle Paul as we have this grand, great treasure in the earthen vessel. This is not our home. This is a temporary passage. And yet there is a great treasure far exceeding all this. A greater weight of glory in which we long for. And so we can pray. And even in the midst of good times, difficult times, come Lord Jesus, come. We want to enter into our final glory. And no sin, no more see you as you are, and rejoice forevermore in our new home. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.